Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Silviva podcast, the podcast about learning in and with nature. We offer you up-to-date, evidence-based information about the practice of learning outdoors, teaching outside the classroom, nature-based environmental education, place-based education, and related topics. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, and a very warm welcome to the Silviva podcast. We bring you a series of interviews with some of the world's top researchers in outdoor learning. In this podcast, Dr. Louise Chawla and myself, Dr. Rolf Jucker, discuss the two chapters to which Louise has contributed in a recent research volume that I have edited. The volume is called High Quality Outdoor Learning, Evidence-Based Education Outside the Classroom for Children, Teachers and Society. It has been published by Springer Nature in 2022. You can also see the show notes for a link. You can either download the entire book as a PDF or an EPUB. You can download individual chapters or you can in fact read them online. And now I bring you Dr. Louise Challa. A very warm welcome to you, Louise. Before we launch into your research work, give us a bit of background. What is your educational journey and why are you interested in outdoor learning? Well, in the beginning of my life, I was a preschool and elementary school teacher. And I had a job in a Montessori um, school teaching in the lower elementary grades, and those were mixed ages. At the same time, I had started a master's program in Bryn Mawr College in education and child development, and, and I had a little girl who was in the preschool. So I was very interested in learning, and um, the students in the uh, elementary school, Montessori Elementary School, had a lot of free choice learning. Um, you know, we encourage them to find their interests and then dive into them and explore them deeply. And we also had a period each day for just kind of free writing. And the children would get together in their little friendship clusters or around tables and, and just write about anything that they wanted to write about that day. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what they wrote about was what they were doing outside of school. And um, it was clear to me that was really learning the experiences mm -hmm. they were talking about when they were just like out playing in the neighborhood or out in town or so I became really curious about learning outside of school and what kind of community resources are available to children in different communities uh, for this kind of free choice out of school learning? And how, how can we ensure that there are resources that support you know, different dimensions of child development in the community? So I was finishing well, that that became I just I decided that and I, and I decided that within really a couple months of, of um, starting my master's program in education and child development. So the faculty were very nice and they kind of supported my own um, interests. And yeah. even though it's not really what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, but then I transferred to a doctoral program in environmental psychology, which was a whole faculty of people interested in what the world provides for human development mm -hmm. or, or how it constrains it, um, the physical world, what the physical environment um, in cities, in towns, in rural areas, um, what it provides for human development. And my focus was always then on child development. It was very nice. It just so happened that the Department of uh, Child Development was down the hall from the environmental psychology program. So I continued to 
kind of have a foot in both. Um, but that's what I've been doing all, all my career, you know, thinking about um, and mostly community participatory community design and design and planning with children and how do we create the best possible community places for learning outside of school. And now we actually have a program in our city that I, I helped create called Growing Up Boulder because I'm in Boulder, Colorado, which works with the school district and with other organizations like after school organizations for children, engaging them in place-based learning. Uh, so we are in the schools, but we are in the schools in order to take students out of school. Fantastic. That sounds really, really good. So, so it's been a, a, an all-life uh, engagement, really. I think you know, you've referred to it in, in your research at some point as well, that some people believe that particular experiences in, in, in childhood predispose or, or create the interest uh, that we have in the environment uh, later on. So my question to you, my next question to you is, did you have any particular childhood or youth or family experiences for yourself uh, in nature, in, in the environment, which for you were life-changing or were very, very intense in terms of learning? Um, did you have experiences like this? I, yes, it, I mean, that's that's why I do what I do, um, because I want, basically, I feel like I'm working for every child in the world to have the kind of opportunities to roam around their cities or towns, to get out in the natural world like I had as a child. And, you know, I think of that as it's kind of like our aspiration for um sustainable development or mm -hmm. protecting, conserving biodiversity. We're, we're never going to be 100% there. It's kind of always a horizon that we're working toward, mm -hmm. um, but it motivates us. It, it keeps us moving forward. I, I was really lucky as a child. I Well, I was, as a baby, I was in the longleaf pine forest of Florida. That's one story. So yes, I was literally in the middle of the woods um, and kind of have glimpses from my family who was around me then, what that would have been like as, as a baby. But then as an older child, um, I was growing up right outside of New York City, but we had family in New York, in Manhattan, um, originally in Greenwich Village, and then they moved toward the Lower East Side on the edge of Chinatown. And I was really lucky to still grow up in the time when the one rule we had to follow was be home by dinner time. Um, and I didn't always make it home by dinner time. And <laughs> uh, then I had to have just a bowl of cereal for dinner um, as my, <laughs> the consequence. Um, but I was free to roam, to to roam the city and um, to play out in the woods at, around our, our home in suburban New York. Um, and there was a marsh at the top of the woods and it was, um, and then more woods and an old orchard and a brook was a border of our property. And um, yeah, it, it was, it bonded me to the world, but I've, I've never had it made this distinction between nature and cities because mm -hmm. ideally our cities should be full of nature. And um, if you go back in history, uh, they typically were. I mean, I found even the old walled cities generally had, you know, um, orange, some orange groves and lemon groves in them and planting on the roof and hanging gardens. And um, um, at, at least when I when I worked in Lebanon in um, the Middle East, I, I found that that was the case. The old pictures of the cities were actually very green. 
um, even the old walled cities. And so I've always been an advocate for nature and cities. And, mm -hmm. you know, here I am in Boulder, Colorado, in that Growing Up Boulder program that I mentioned to you that works with the school district and after school programs with young people. Um, it is a city, but it's also very green and we're always working with young people to make it greener. Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right to draw this link between uh, green spaces and, and, and the city. And it's something we realize here in Switzerland, you know, sometimes teachers say, uh, oh, it's actually quite difficult to do outdoor learning because we have to go a long way to the next forest. And then we ask them, have you, have you ever opened your eyes in the neighborhood whether there are any green spaces close by, uh, mm -hmm. which might not necessarily be woods, but um, there might be, uh, as you said, there might, there might be a brook, it might be a, um, an abandoned uh, area overgrown, it might be a, a former cemetery which is not used anymore, it, it might be um, something very close by, but because we might have focused on this ideal, it needs to be the woods or the forest, we don't actually see the green spaces which are around us and which we can actually use for yes. for outdoor learning. So I think it's a very important point you're making there. And and then of course there's school ground greening and involving you know students in that. So yes, definitely lots of possibilities in cities too. Yes, absolutely. Um and that doesn't take away um the other uh side of what you were saying that um maybe we have to focus on how can we make our cities even greener? Um, and in this context, I would like to ask you maybe a wider question. Uh, in Switzerland, there's a quite a sizable debate these days about, you know, what kind of schooling do we need? We have a lot of challenges, admittedly, you know, we have challenges to our democracy, we have the climate change, challenge we have uh, you mentioned it already we have the biodiversity loss it's quite huge challenges and and uh, the question is has has outdoor learning in your view anything to contribute to this reinventing or recalibrating of schooling you know schooling for the 21st century what do we need do we need outdoor learning in there or what's your view on this? Well, I let me say some more about our the Growing Up Boulder program that we have here in Boulder. Because um, civic learning is as critical to it as, well, I, I was going to say as much as place-based learning, but to me, the way we do civic learning, it, it is an aspect of place-based mm, learning. It's integrated. Uh, yes, and I was working in Norway after the Convention on the Rights of the Child was ratified. Uh, so at that point, it was the mid-1990s. Of course, the Convention on the Rights of the Child was ratified in 1989. But um, I was able, while well, I was based at the University of Trondheim, um, for two years as a Fulbright Scholar, I was able to get UNESCO to revive a visionary project that started in 1970 with Kevin Lynch, who's a, um, a, a very much cited, um, revered uh, urban planning, urban planner and designer who was based at MIT, but very, very humanistic person, very humanistic view of cities. And in 1970, um, in response to the environmental crisis at that time, to rivers burning, you know, fish kills mm. in rivers, smog choking cities, those environmental crises that led to Earth Day and to the establishment of environmental agencies in, in many countries around the world. And, to a series of environmental protection acts here in the United States. 
um, he was part of a UNESCO meeting in Helsinki, which was based on the premise that we'll never solve all these environmental problems just through technological and policy means. It's going to require people um, who have agency to create localities, um, communities, neighborhoods with a high quality of life for them, which includes the natural world. And here we are right away back again in nature and cities, nature and our towns and communities. And um, so he came up with the idea, proposed it to UNESCO and they accepted it of creating a program called Growing Up Cities, um, which would involve groups of young people around the ages of 10 to 14 in most sites uh, in working with landscape designers, urban designers, architects, urban planners um, to identify what are those kind of critical community resources that make where they live a good place to grow up. And he did this in working class communities in every case. So let's take children whose environments tend to be disadvantaged. Can we work together with them to still create humane communities that support healthy child and youth development? Um, and so he started this project and it was in four countries around the world. And I think each project site was successful, except they could not go to that next step of getting people in city councils, getting people in planning agencies to pay any attention to what the young people had to say. Um, there was just no interest at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So when I was in um, the child research program at the University of Trondheim, I realized, well, now we have the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and, and its articles include that children have a right to a voice in decisions that affect their lives. And the, yes. the committee on, on the rights of the child had ruled that that includes their living environment. So I thought, well, let's, let's try to get this really well-conceived program going again and um, let's see what happens this time, because now we can appeal to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And UNESCO, I just happened to approach them at an opportune time, and they liked the idea. And um, so did a group called Child Watch in uh, Norway. So they helped, uh, really provided the support, and I was able to revive Kevin Lynch's Growing Up in Cities program. And... Um, so it's very much based on that idea of giving young people agency, working in partnership with adults, because when we're making decisions about community spaces, you know that there's always a lot of stakeholder, stakeholders involved. It's not something children cannot like take a vacant lot and turn it into a beautiful community park all by themselves. It requires legal processes and you know higher levels of engagement, but they can do work like that in partnership with adults. And so when I came to the University of Boulder here, I brought those ideas with me and I was very fortunate. Actually, one of the key people that I worked with during the UNESCO project, David Driscoll, um, an urban planner happened to be hired to be the new um, director of sustainability and community planning in Boulder. So we had the two of us. I had another great third colleague, Willem van Vliet, from, originally from the Netherlands, who was working with UN Habitat. So we brought our ideas here. And, and following that path, that's what we've been doing. So there's there's great value in going out into nature and learning the natural history there and and that's often part of the projects we do if if young people for example are going to have a voice in planning the 
renovation restoration of Boulder Creek that runs through the middle of our city, they need to understand its ecology. You know, we, we need to start with that. But we don't stop with that because then it's about how can young people have agency in creating new green spaces, um, thinking about increasing their bio, the biodiversity and in our case, urban spaces, since we're working in a city, um, how civic decisions are made, how city government works, um, how can we they actually work with the planning department um, or the urban design staff there, our parks and recreation or whoever it is who's managing green spaces. Um, so it's about the civic learning as much as it is about subject learning when we take young people outdoors. I very much like this broader definition of outdoor learning. You know, you the, what you just explained to us is, is clearly pointing to an understanding of outdoor learning as real world learning. You know, it's not just out in nature, it's really the interaction of people with be it nature, be it uh, their city environment, be it the local environment, uh, be it the work environment, um, and and the kind of learning that needs to be promoted, the, the civic learning you you mentioned, that is a very wide, yeah, includes a very wide definition of outdoor, not just the natural space, but the entire world we live in. Is that a, a, a correct reading of how you understand it or would you would you phrase that differently? Uh, yes, I, that is how I understand it, Rolf. Except, of course, there's um, just being out in nature is good too in itself. We, mm -hmm. we need plenty of that. And and what we're trying to do when young people work together, um, you know, with, with uh, other people in the city, to in that case in, improve um, and increase green spaces, we're working to create those opportunities. So we have a space here and now people can just go out and be in nature there. Children can go there, they can play there, they can discover things there. I will say that we're, we're very much interested as well in um, you know, public spaces like a, a city square. Mm -hmm. um, in general, because you you know you were you, your question was about all these threats we face yeah. in terms of threats to democracy, threats to the biosphere. One of our commitments in our program is that at least half of our progr programs are specifically focused on working with young people from historically marginalized populations or children and, and youth with disabilities. In our case, we have a, a significant Latino population in mm -hmm. our city and their parents tend to be um, laborers, uh, service workers, low-income families in an expensive city. And so trying to create public places where you know people of all kinds feel comfortable um, working together in, in groups that include all kinds of people, um, you know, is very much what we're dedicated to as well. And But I, we do believe that that civic part is really critical in addressing these great challenges of our time that, that you asked about, mm -hmm. because young people need to know how can they act effectively? How can they act cooperatively with other people uh, to create a better world? Yes, I, I, I really like that because it focuses on, it's not just the human nature connection we're talking about. It is also the, the way we interact as humans with each other but also how we look after ourselves. So it's the kind of the, the, the connection with ourselves, it's the connection with other humans, but it's also the human nature connection, yes. which we need to look at if we want to 
address uh, these issues we talked about. Yes. And, and of course, a school is a civic organization in mm -hmm. itself. Absolutely. Um, you know, our Growing Up Boulder program began, and there is a website on it. If people go there, they will find really lots of information and reports on multiple previous projects and so forth. It's just growingupboulder.org. But it started because we know that we can't expect teachers to just kind of go do this on their own. As you were saying, there were all teachers are pressed in, from a lot of different directions. And, um, and in my experience, it, it really takes some kind of outside support coming in and helping teachers mm -hmm. take their uh, students outside. And that might not always be the case in all countries. It, it is here. Um, and I mean, you just need extra people going along, for example, when um, the class is going outdoors. And so helping to provide those extra people. And, it, it, you know, it can be, we are a nonprofit, but we're also integrated into the city and into the city budget um, as one of our sources of funding. Um, but so whatever the outside group is, I, I think those kind of partnerships between schools and teachers and outside groups that make the going outdoors outside the school practical, feasible for teachers to do, I, I think that's a very important part, certainly of the outdoor learning in the urban environment that we're working in. Let, let's maybe shift the discussion um, onto research. You have contributed two central chapters to um, that research volume, High Quality Outdoor Learning, which I edited uh, one chapter together with Cathy Jordan, a coordinated research mm -hmm. agenda for nature-based learning. Um, but I think most importantly, a, a really wonderful, I really love it, a wonderful piece of research which we uh, condensed and shortened, shortened from a previous publication uh, called Childhood Nature Connection and Constructive Hope. And what, what really interests me is kind of based on your long and extensive you know, interest in the topic, but also research on the topic, what would you say is, are the most important aspects of outdoor learning? and particularly maybe out of learning in nature, but, but, but really also in this wider mm -hmm. um, conception we just talked about. Right. Uh, yes, and um, and I want to thank you again, Rolf and Jacob Au, who also co-edited the High Quality Outdoor Learning um, for giving us an opportunity to kind of further share um, the work that we've done. Uh, Kathy Jordan, who's the Director of Research for Children and Nature Network, and, and I, as you mentioned, we worked on the piece on a research agenda for mm -hmm. nature-based learning. And um, and then the, the second piece that you mentioned, Rolf, which came out as originally as an article in the People in Nature Journal. And I, again, I, I have to say to you, there are so many wonderful pieces in in that book, High Quality Outdoor Learning that I've been learning from and still going back into it and, and reading. Well, I, I do wanna pick up um, with the research agenda piece first. Uh, we were really trying to identify research questions that um, could have a practical impact. And so it just, uh, for, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, with that chapter, it describes a process, a three-year process that was funded by the National Science Foundation here in the United States that brought together 23 uh, researchers, uh, some program funders, and the director of the North American Association for Environmental Education, for example, so organization people, to define the field of nature-based learning and um, to come up with, uh, to get that 
the existing research reviewed and to come up with what we considered really productive questions for moving research forward. And some of those were kind of very basic questions like what is happening when young people are outside learning mm -hmm. in nature? The research indicates there were a lot of benefits gained there and question why, what are the mechanisms, what is mm -hmm. happening? Mm -hmm. um, what are kind of key aspects of learning outdoors in nature at, at different ages, potentially for different groups, populations, and um, to basic questions like that, but then also the very practical questions that I, we were just starting to talk about, Rolf, like how do we get schools to adopt nature-based learning? How, how do we support teachers to make it really practical for them to do this? So um, a range of different questions. Um, and we define nature-based learning where the just being out in nature is a really important part um, because there is so much research now that shows that it's good for us. Mm -hmm. It's good for children. It's good for adults. It's good for people of all ages. It's good for children of all ages um, to be out in, in the natural world. And again, whether they are, they've gone off to a camp in the forest or, uh, you know, an extended field trip in the forest or, um, or they're out on their naturalized school ground or they're in a city park, wherever it might be. Um, so no matter what young people are studying, the research shows that there are lots of benefits just to being in nature. Mm -hmm. So one of the chapters in that book that uh, a wonderful experimentalist, Ming Kuo, and a couple of colleagues um, did is called Ref Refueling Students in yes. Flight. It's wonderful, and, yeah. And she shows the benefits of even if students just go outside where there happens to be a green space outside their school and they do their math lessons there, then they go back into school, they're going to perform better in their next classes. It it really is um, restorative for them. And so we have just a, a long, long list of research now that shows there are benefits just to being out in nature, it, not necessarily studying natural history, but doing any subject matter outdoors. Yeah. I think that's a very, very important point you make there because we very often in discussion with teachers or teacher trainers, um, we encounter an expectation that outdoor learning really has to be this perfect, well-developed place-based learning which engages, mm -hmm. engages very, very specifically with the particular nature space uh, you encounter and so forth and so forth. And that has all tremendous value. I'm not saying this, uh, mm -hmm. denying this at all. But I think the point you're making is, and, and that's, I think is so important, is the benefits accrue even if you copy and paste, even if you, for example, mm -hmm. walk in on Tuesday morning and you realize that the class dynamic is really at a very low ebb and, and, and you know you've got to do something about it. And, mm -hmm. But you've planned a, a, a reading session in, 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 in English. Sure. Take that reading session outside, let the kids read under the trees and then take it back inside uh, an hour, just an hour, you know, the chapter mm -hmm. you refer to, uh, they, they're talking about simply one lesson outside and yeah. it will have a positive impact. And uh, we, we very often say this to, to, to teachers or, or, or head teachers and so forth. Um, it can be very low level. It still will have a positive mm -hmm. impact. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a dimension of nature-based learning. It's just those benefits of learning outside in nature, whatever you're learning. Mm. Um, but then, of course, the other aspect is learning about nature. Yes. In, in nature. And there are different kinds of learning that 
that research on nature-based learning investigates. There's the formal learning like in, in a classroom, but then there's also the informal learning. And and we we tend to associate that with preschools. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll, we'll create a really beautiful naturalized school grounds around a preschool and let the children just go out there and play. Mm -hmm. um, and they're learning, of course, they're they're mm. learning a lot just by playing in nature and making making spontaneous discoveries um, as as well as having actual set lessons for learning about nature. So nature based learning is is very multifaceted and mm -hmm. um, and it could be going to a museum also where there are all these artifacts of nature um, and learning in that way too so it's also kind of learning with elements of, of nature so it's a very broad definition and again um trying to understand the basic mechanisms of of what why do we see benefits in terms of more engaged learning mm -hmm. um, children are calmer mm -hmm. social relationships change between students and students and their teachers to become more cooperative and more positive. Yep. So there are all of those benefits happening and and why. So part of the research agenda is to understand why and and what works best as I said for mm -hmm. for different ages, different groups of young people. Um and then just understanding why just being in nature is is beneficial in so many ways. Those are all aspects of it. But then again, there's really all these practical questions come in. Well, if this is so, how do we help school administrators understand the importance of this yes. and support this? How do we help teachers actually do it? Um, there are these very important practical questions. And now we live in a digital world. What's the proper balance of kind mm -hmm. of using digital De, um, devices. We have all the great natural history apps, of course, to identify birds or trees. Or, but what's the proper balance between using those and and yet still keeping young people primarily focused in the here and now? Yeah. If you maybe um, focus on 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 the second chapter, you know, childhood uh, nature connection and constructive hope. Um, this uh, theme of hope is is very important to your research, and I would argue that we clearly need a lot of hope, um, uh, not just now, but but now as well. So, could you maybe say a few things about yes. why this is, in your view, such an important topic to address? Yes. To me, it's the topic of our age, Rolf, in in working with young people, mm. um, and and not just you know not just for young people. I was actually at our state capitol last week, um, testifying, and where there were a couple other people who, you know, devoting their lives, their their work, that's their career, is protecting biodiversity mm -hmm. and. Um, and they were talking about what they go through during a legislative session psychologically. Um, and I don't know how it is in the German political system or Swiss political system, but um, it's really difficult to move forward in our, yeah. our political system in the United States here, where which is so where lobbyists, industry lobbyists have such heavy influence and mm -hmm. um and yet they're up they're possibilities so we are we're out there but just realizing again how how much we really need to think about and all together how do we support each other and how do we support mm. young people in this very difficult time for everybody who does care about the future of biodiverse life on earth um, and of course, human beings were part of that. We're, we're not yes. separate from it. If we're talking <laughs> about our own future. And so, what I did in in the People in Nature article that was is reproduced in the book on high quality outdoor learning is I was well aware. I was actually again part of a in this national network 
in this case, working on um, identifying ways to measure nature connection and apply that in research. Um, and I, I actually insisted that it include um, qualitative approaches as well as yep. quantitative. Yep. And there's a wonderful book on that called A Practitioner's Ga Guide to um, Assessing Connection to Nature, which is there for free. A download on the North American Association for Environmental Education website now. But I, so I was part of this group and we're going through all these different measures to select those that we're, we're going to put in this handbook. And, and they really 100% define connection to nature as something positive. But at the same time, since the 1990s, I've been reading studies that ask young people really open-ended questions like, Mm -hmm. What do you think the world is going to be like in 50 years? Or you know, what do you think the world is going to be like when you're raising your own children? Or do you have any environmental concerns? Very, very open-ended questions like that. And then the majority, in many cases, the great majority of young people respond with these terribly dystopic visions mm -hmm. of the future. And I had a doctoral student who did research like that. And her question was simply, she was looking at um, children's relationships with nature in a very upper income um, suburb of Denver and in a really very environmentally disadvantaged um, working class neighborhood where there was oil refinery and just all kinds of super fun sites. And, and it actually didn't matter. She was getting mm -hmm. the same mm -hmm. proportion mm -hmm. of young people responded with when she asked them, do you have any environmental concerns? Very simple. About 80% on both sides came out with statements that I just, I, I really felt kind of punched in the stomach. They, they said things like, well, I'm really sad because you know, my grandson or my great nephew is going to have to experience the end of the world. Or... I'm really sad because all of the animals are going to die or, you mm -hmm. know, statements like that. Mm -hmm. And yet these young people, that's connection to nature too. Mm. And so that's my argument. And, and actually, when you look at measures of how do we measure connection to nature? How do we measure, you know, environmental fear and, and feelings of loss? I found really common indicators that, Across both. I mean, both of them, young people are expressing a sense of affiliation with nature and empathy for other living things in nature. They understand the interdependence between human beings and the rest of the natural world. They're motivated to protect the natural world. So common indicators in, in the measures of both. And that led me to look at, all right, so let me look at these two fields of research. Uh, nature connection research and helping young people cope with environmental loss, that body of research. Mm, mm. And what do they recommend? And I found there was a lot of overlap there too. And not 100% overlap, but overlap. And and I'm afraid to, I need to encourage people to uh, get the book, High Quality Outdoor Learning, and and read the chapter where I can, when, go into details into those areas of overlap and, and some recommendations that are distinctive on each side, but still, I think, very important. Because I, I think we need to be very mindful of that. Connecting with nature is important, and both sides recommend that, because <clears throat> as we were just talking about, it's restorative. You know, it, it fills us up with that, you know, those experiences of, of be, being in a place where the birds are singing and the water is running and the light is coming through the trees. And, and you know, it's, it's so important to our well-being and we need to be resourced um, mm. and children need to be resourced. So, again, to just being out in nature and outdoor learning is is really important. And then I I think to make it kind of really quick, young people need to know they're not alone with their fears and worries. And that requires what the research shows again and again, it requires 
safe spaces where they can talk about their emotions. And I was really dismayed that in a lot of the studies um, with young people, they said they don't have that. Hmm. And um, um, Maria Ojala, who was doing this research in Sweden, she speculated that, well, when you're a tween, a young adolescent, you're a teen, you're always supposed to be cool. And mm -hmm. being cool means you never have any worries. You know, mm. you're never distressed. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and young people talked about being made fun of if they, you know, tried to, mm. if they brought up the subject about their fears and worries about what is happening to our planet, sometimes being made fun of by their peers, our teachers just saying, we don't have time for that, you know, get back mm -hmm. to your math assignment or yeah. teachers not being supportive or our parents sometimes saying, oh yeah, you know, we're doomed. Um, that's not helpful either. But so safe spaces where people can share emotions and discover they're not the only ones carrying these fears and worries around because a lot of young people um, can think that they are. And then showing them they're, they're not the only people who care about this either. And so I think of it as we need to help young people know, well, what can I do as an individual? What can we do working together? And, and I think that's where nature-based learning has so many opportunities because young people are going out together in groups. Um, as I, that's what our Growing Up Boulder program with, works with the schools is all about. And what can we do working together? And um, what are other people doing? Um, and bringing, you know, engagement between young people. You can have visitors coming into the classroom. You can go to other people's places and go visit a regenerative farm or whatever um, and see what other people are doing and be inspired by that. And again, it's confirmation again and again, you're, you're not alone in facing this difficult future. And there are things that you can do and that we can do and that others are doing. Yes, I mean, that that was precisely what impressed me about this chapter of yours, that um, you brought these different fields together and, and the insights from these fields. And you had a very differentiated look at our connection with nature, not just this positive, usually mm. foregrounded positive aspect. And, um, and I really felt very helpful to to differentiate between the different attitudes uh, and uh, you know as you single out denial mm. and and yeah. and then what could be called the kind of um, the, the different di kinds of coping yeah the different kinds of coping you know denial depression and 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 hope mm -hmm. and what you just outlined very very beautifully is we need to to foster that you know you've talked before you've talked about um, you know, that was your program in Boulder. You you really want to foster agency. And mm -hmm. and I think this awareness and support that, yes, we can, we have spheres of influence. We can do mm -hmm. something both as individuals, but also collectively in, in small yeah. groups. And I found that very, very heartening in, in your piece to really see, okay, yes, um, you know, if, if we can encourage kids to to um to join nature groups or or to 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 create their own groups or or, or mm -hmm. to to work together with with um with existing actors that is really really helping to sustain this understanding that we are not just passive victims of what is going on yes, around yes. us but that yes. we do have agency that we do that we can, despite the fact that, as you mentioned, you know, is the state legislative and so forth, you know, um, it's, it's not it's not an easy ride very often. Right. Um, but we do have agency. And particularly if we don't understand it only as a kind of individual game or mm -hmm. profiling um, uh, thing, but um, a, a collective uh, interaction with the world. Yes. Yes, Ralph. And now we're getting back now again to your question, how do we help prepare students for yeah, the 21st exactly. century for yep. what is happening here? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to go back to your yes, talk. So I've been um, 
very inspired by the work of Maria Oyala in um, in Sweden, who's been looking at this. How do we help, you know, support young people as we face this difficult political and environmental future um, and present? It's here right now. And she draws on the work of um, psychologists uh, uh, Lazarus and Folkman, who talk about three kinds of coping. Mm -hmm. And one is emotion focused. And that would include, I, I'm I'm going to get away from these difficult emotions. I'm I'm just I'm going to escape them. I'm going to yep. distract myself. I'm but it so it can have that negative side and and Denial, of course, is one way to tamp down any troubling emotions. Apathy is another way of mm -hmm. opt out. There's nothing I can do, so why should I even think about it? But uh, there is a positive side, too. Sometimes we're overwhelmed and we need to go for a walk in the park or a walk in the woods. And, you know, again, use those restorative experiences in the natural world to to resource ourselves. Um, so there, there's a positive side of taking care of our emotions as well. So there's emotion-focused coping, and then there's problem-focused coping. I'm going to solve the problem that's ca that's causing, you know, these upsetting feelings, and um, and that's good. But what she found in her research is that, and I've I've seen this too in in, in here. It's research in the United States. Um, so few young people have experiences in their mm -hmm. schools or in community groups of working to create a better world, socially, environmentally, um, working together with others. So very few young people in these surveys have ever had these experiences, so much so that you know, I've talked to survey people surveying this in the United States who don't even include those questions in surveys, which I think is unfortunate, but because mm -hmm. so many, so few young people answer that they ever have those kind of positive collective yeah. experiences. So, yes. so that is a critical aspect of of nature based learning, um, and if if they don't, there's a great risk of, and and Maria Ojala found this of young people feeling it's all on me it's all on my shoulders i'm going to ride my bike to school instead of letting my parents drive me i'm going to turn off the lights i'm you know i'm going to recycle but realizing they can't solve the problem by themselves mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so she actually found that it could increase worry and anxiety mm -hmm. when they really felt they were alone to try to solve the problems and then Another kind of coping is what Susan Folkman calls emotion meaning focused. Mm -hmm. And and that's finding meaning in the struggle to create a better world, even though the outcome is uncertain. Mm -hmm. Just you know, there there's doing this is meaningful. And you know, I've I've interviewed many dedicated environmentalists um, over the years, and mm -hmm. and I hear them say that again and again. They know they're up against you know a very difficult system, but you know I'm not going to give up. I'm working together with other people, and and you know that's very supportive. And there, I find meaning in doing this. And young people can come to that position as well. Um, typically, more older young people can kind of think their way through that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so I think part of your work, um, and again, nature, um, outdoor learning is is so well positioned to do that, is to provide opportunities where young people can really have all of those, engage in all those kinds of coping Um because uh, we need to be able to cope with the difficult future in in order to address it effectively. Yes, yes. I, I think you 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 are very right. Uh, that's that's so important to to address all these levels. And uh, in a way, I, I think that's you've you've really described this very beautifully. It it reminds me always a little bit of the history of the environmental movement because. Mm -hmm. or, or the movement also of environmental education, because initially 
there was a very strong focus on the individual and 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 mm -hmm. yes. yes you know yes. i shoulder the problems of the world and i have to solve it and um this invariably uh leads to 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 failure because you can't you know it's yes. it's, it's totally impossible that you as an yes. individual can solve the the complex problems we we created as a as as humankind uh, over over a long period of time um and and i think in environmental education as well we we came to the understanding uh, of a, of a far more balanced view that yes without us as individuals and collectively uh, engaging and doing our best nothing is going to change but at the same time it's not our individual responsibility. Um, we can contribute, we can do our bit, but but that's it. You know, we can, we can't do the whole. Um, right. uh, the, 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 the whole. Uh, we can't provide the whole solution, and I think that is very very empowering. Uh, as as Silviva, our organization, we. Act to come to this conclusion as well, you know, yes. we, we have a we have a very limited role to play, but there we can try to do our best and and make our contribution. But it is a contribution mm -hmm. to the the efforts and 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 uh, engagement and commitment of other people uh, in other areas also. Um, yes. Not just environmental education, but um, you know, there's, there's, there's peace education, whatever you might want to want to want to name, and 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 we need all those uh, various facets to move on. It's not just a single corner which can actually do the whole thing. Yes, and and I think what is implied in what you're saying, Ralph, is and that we need to deliberately make part of outdoor learning is is time for reflection. Yes. And providing, as I said, students uh, those safe spaces to talk about and process um, yes. these kind of reflections, the, the emotions associated with them, and really be weave those opportunities um, for discussion and reflection into outdoor learning. Yeah. Louise, it's been a really really rich wonderful conversation but i would love to ask you another question the last one okay as a farewell gift to our listeners <laughs> what would be your vision of outdoor learning in say 2050 because we talk a lot, a lot about 2050 with uh, you know paris agreement and and so forth and oh, so forth so yes. it's kind of the the the, the time horizon uh, we have started to think in so what what will be your vision of outdoor learning by then well my wish would be that as a human society as cultures across the planet We've come back to the realization that we all started with as when human beings evolved from everything the archaeological and anthropological records showed us. We, we started out feeling that we were part of a community of life and um, that um, as the Native Americans here in, on my side of the Atlantic say, um, all our relatives that you know all other living things are our relatives and and that means not just all the other animals but the you know plants and all forms of life and that as a human society across this globe um we realize that that's indeed the case and that unless we protect um and collaborate with the restorative powers of nature itself um we're we're not going to be um that we cannot do it alone we cannot live alone we can only live as part of a community and that means a community of life and our human communities and therefore there's been a revolution in education where learning about this and getting out and restoring places and restoring biodiversity and um, 
protecting the natural world and our school grounds and across our communities and working on this together um, as schools and as organizations that work with children or organizations of all kinds that we're doing this together. That's my hopeful vision. Beautiful. Louise, thank you so much for sharing your ideas, your insight, your long history of engagement with outdoor learning with us. Thank you so much. A really deeply felt thank you to you. Well, and, and thank you for this opportunity. I, I wish all of you who are going to hear this. I, I wish I could see you and engage with you, but um, I thank you, Rolf, for this opportunity to share a conversation. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Sylviva podcast. We hope you learned something new that you can use in your own practice. Feel free to give us feedback and share your experiences at www.silviva.ch podcast, where you can also find the show notes as well as more information about learning outdoors in and with nature. See you next time. Music